is Ralph from Happy Dog Training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today we're going to talk about dog training models. And that's something that's actually going to be way more interesting for you than you probably think right now when you heard this phrase, what's a dog training model? Why do I care? What the hell is that? Right? But let me explain because it's actually going to be quite interesting. And what, what it comes down to is that Dog trainers all have different ideas on what matters when you train dogs. So you probably heard the joke, there's um, the only thing that two dog trainers will ever agree on is that a third trainer has no idea what he's doing. But they're already not going to agree on why they think that. Right? So they kind of have different reasons why the third trainer doesn't know. So everybody has a different view. There's as many opinions on dogs as there are dog trainers, it seems. Which is problematic, because it shouldn't be. There's the science of learning is not like that convoluted. Um, it's certainly not super easy to understand all of the different complex aspects of it, but it's not that difficult that we should just cast it aside and everybody makes up their own stuff. But that's um, a lot of what has happened. So people have come to um, trying to simplify the way they look at dogs and trying to come up with models that will explain everything from start to finish. And then, once they have something that they feel is comprehensive, they're trying to squeeze everything under the sun in it. And it gets pretty ludicrous at times. So let me give you a couple of examples of models that are out there. And what some of the limitations are when you look at dog training models. And that's going to be helpful for the average dog owner to just assess what kind of ideology or what kind of uh, methodology is a particular trainer you may be interviewing following, what is their view on dogs, what problems could there possibly occur with that kind of thinking, give you some, some things to, to think about. This is not an, a um, description of what is right or wrong, because a lot of these models all have truth in them. It's just not that they're comprehensive or have no gaps. The nature of a model is that it has gaps. All models have gaps. We build models of any kind because reality is too complex. You do a miniature model of a car to test something related to that model, so you focus on the aspect that's relevant in your model, because building the entire car as a real car costs too much or takes too long, or is too complex, you couldn't do it. So you try to do something simpler. This would be a physical model in this case. But is this the same with models that we're talking about in dog training? <coughs> so common models that we have are the following, and I'm sure there's more, but I'm just going to give you a couple of the well-known ones to give you an idea. So, operant conditioning is a model of dog training. There are people out there who think that's it. That's all it is. Operant conditioning, the four quadrants of positive, negative, reinforcement, and punishment, that's the entirety of dog training, and that will do everything. That is the behaviorist view from the 1950s on dogs. We know at this point for sure what the limits are at the time people were debating but obviously neuroscience and MRIs of brain scans and 
effective neuroscience and all that stuff. It taught us a lot more about uh, aspects of that that we just know are wrong at this point. But it's a model that persists. It's an important model. It's a model that has very valuable components and a lot of valuable information and operant conditioning is a key, key aspect of training dogs. But as the singular thing and the all-inclusive, all-encompassing model that allows us to do everything and explains everything, it's very problematic because it leaves out the acknowledgement of everything that really matters. Genetics, evolutionary psychology, neurology, the limbic system. The brain is no longer the same black box it was when the behaviorists formulated all these ideas. Back then, we didn't know. They didn't know. They did the best they could. And given that, that's a marvelous model. And much of it has a lot of value to this day. Many studies around many aspects of the quadrants are irrefutable. We stopped testing because we couldn't invalidate them. And so we, a lot of these tests and studies stopped in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s because the results just wouldn't change. We understand a lot of these aspects very, very well. Very established science. But it's not explaining everything. It's explaining a lot of important components. But it also has a lot of gaps. Um, a real connection between two beings isn't built through conditioning. Huh? It's built through emotional connection. It's built through invo evoking emotion in interactions. It has nothing to do with operant conditioning. So there's a fun fundamental gap just from that aspect of interaction between us and the dog that's completely missing from that model, as important as it still is. But it's a model, and it has limits, like every model does. So that's a model. It's an important model, but it's got limits. Let's take another model. Um, one that became very popular with uh, the TV show The Dog Whisperer in Season 1, it's the, the pack-oriented model. We have to be the pack leader. That's the model of... Of, of, of Caesar and the TV show, and that became its own thing. There is a whole range of trainers and outlets and um, companies built around that idea that we have to be the leader. And it is such a tiny portion of reality that it's really remarkable how this became this big thing that supposedly explains it all and makes you the best dog owner on earth if you just follow it. And it's not that you should not be the leader to your dog. Yeah, you should. But what does that mean? That means you should provide direction on what should happen and what shouldn't. And you should protect, protect your dog, provide protection. The dog needs to trust you. Know he's safe with you. And that's actually a quote from season one. Is leadership is protection and direction. It's a great quote. I'm not sure he and I would agree on what these words mean in the context of a dog. We may very well differ on what the details of that are, but the way I understand these words and use these words, I do agree with this quote. It's protection and direction. Um, but the details of that will probably vary on, because it's a tiny portion of being a dog owner. Yes, your dog should respect you. Yes, you have to be a leader to your dog. But that's a really small component of building a great relationship and teaching him what you want and making him a happy and whole being and having a great, great, great uh, interaction every day. That's not the end-all be-all. It doesn't fix all the problems as 
it's sometimes portrayed by the um, disciples of uh, of Caesar and him in, in the TV show. So it's yes, it's it's not wrong with, with the general idea that you should lead your dog, but it makes no sense to have the dog constantly walk next to you, right? But that that's a thing that came from that, and that's not really why. It's not necessary at all, because the body position is not related related to the understanding of who's in charge. So if you think back at the episode of dog walking, something I mentioned there was um, examples of a guide dog walks ahead of a blind person, police dog, building search sent into the the building before the cop, drug detection sent ahead to sniff out drug, explosives sent ahead to explode find explosives, cadaver dog sent ahead to find a dead body. Um, sled dogs run ahead of the musher in a wolf pack. A wolf pack. The pack leader will hand over leading the pack to the more skilled hunter if that doesn't happen to be the pack leader, which it doesn't have to be. So he will transfer leadership for the hunt to a more skilled hunter, a pack member, to make the pack successful. And after it's over, it switches back without any struggle. In none of these scenarios is there any kind of confusion of who's in charge of the operation. Body position isn't relevant to that. Yes, the dog can be on the sofa. If he behaves himself on the sofa, if he starts biting you if you want to join him, that would be a problem. Unless you wouldn't allow that and the dog needs to learn that's not okay. But that none of that makes the model of the pack leader a comprehensive model. It's just a very, very small model. It's a very niche model, actually. It's probably one of the smaller ones. And I, I remember an episode a long time ago, and I think that was before I was a dog trainer even. Um, I, I remember there was, a, there was an episode where a dog was chasing the shadows of birds. And the explanation that was given on the TV show, I mean, he twist, the poor guy twisted himself into a pretzel trying to squeeze the answer into his view and his model because all has to fit the model. Right? The answer that we give has to fit our model. If it doesn't fit the model, well, then it can't be. This is the model. The model is inclusive. My answer has to fit in the model. The answer can't be the answer. It has to be something else there. So th this is the problem with models, right? If you try to squeeze everything in there. Another model is the drive model, focusing on the, the key drive, pack drive, prey drive, and defensive drive of the dog. And so a drive is um, related to survival, generally speaking. So if you have anything that has a relationship to survival of the dog, and the dog experiences that or sees it. And he hasn't addressed it. Let's say there's a squirrel running up the tree and he hasn't chased it. Right? He hasn't addressed it. And that's a survival thing. It's food. I mean, he may not be hungry. You feed him well. But this is a survival instinct. So chasing prey is a survival instinct. Now, there's a negative state of tension from not doing that. And only doing that fulfills the negative state of tension and alleviates the drive. So it's the drive theory and dog training. It goes back to 
a Clark Hall was published in a book in 1943. But it is alleviating an inner lack of fulfillment that is related to a survival activity. So if we understand what a drive is, and then people say pack drive, prey drive, defensive drive, yep, they all fall nicely in the understanding of what a drive is, right? And then people say food drive, or ball drive, even. This is like play drive. Play drive is very common in sports where people say play drive. Well, is play a drive? In terms of um, what a drive is defined as, it's not a drive because playing evolves around, centers around, of play is an emotion, first of all, let's start with that, so in the limbic system of the brain, there's a physical center in your, in your brain which is dedicated to play. So play is an affective system. It's not a drive, it's an affective system. Now the execution of play will lead to the practice of genetically predisposi genetic predispositions. So a dog, being a predator, wants to engage in predatory activities by its very design. So searching, stalking, chasing, fighting, celebration, consumption, these aspects of play are the aspects of the predatory hunting sequence. So when dogs express these aspects during play, they are practicing predatory activities which are part of prey drive. That doesn't make play a drive. And when you go more narrow, and then you say, well, ball drive, people say that. Now it's a specific toy as a drive? That's silly, right? But people have this model of drive, and now they're squeezing what they're doing into their model, and it becomes ridiculous. Um, so there's no such thing as ball drive. A dog who likes balls is, doesn't have ball drive. Huh? The dog probably has prey drive, likes to play, and chasing is the aspect he cares about the most, so he expresses him in the chase and catch game or fetch game. It doesn't make it ball a drive. So, again, trying to squeeze something in there into the drive view that isn't a drive. It's not. So, if it doesn't address a negative state of tension, as it's defined, or alleviates a negative state of tension, it's not fulfilling a drive. Doesn't mean play isn't important. Play is very important. We do play-based training. We love play. Play is super powerful. There's so much value in it. But play is also not a dog training model, right? It's an emotion. So you have to kind of take all these things with a grain of salt and see, does what the trainer in front of me, what model does he subscribe to? What is he talking about? Is he talking about drives a lot? Is he talking about leadership a lot? Is he talking about uh, conditioning a lot, it would be all like indications of which uh, which category to fall into. And there are other models. It's not this is by no means a comprehensive list. There's other ideas. There's the natural the natural model from um, Kevin Behar. Um, that's an interesting um, approach to things. Be prey. I, I I'm not I'm not I'm not too fond of that that approach of being prey. But there's some ideas in there that. But definitely um, interesting. But these are all different views of how dogs are, how training should be factored around them or in, 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 in the model that we're subscribing to. And then every problem that occurs is squeezed into that. And if that is the approach someone takes, they're going to be limited in what they can accomplish.
and I've been guilty of this myself in the past, when I was a less experienced trainer, 10 years ago or so, I gave more weight to certain views than I do today. Like, I gave the conditioning and the, the drive and the pack leader view way more credit than they deserve in the overall scheme of things. And that was a lack of knowledge on my part back then. And I have no problem admitting that because I, I learned now I know more and I can do better. And so that, that, that's, uh, that's what professionals do, that become better and never stop learning. And 10 years from now, I will know even more. And I'm sure I'll change my view on some things again over time. Um, I hope so. I hope I'm not stagnant. But we need to be careful to not squeeze things into categories, models, and frameworks they don't belong in. Uh, so let me think back of how um, ethology came about and uh, the, the geese observations with Lawrence back then and Nobody has to teach a fish to swim. Right? They're born knowing that. Why is that if everything's conditioning? Like reinforcement and punishment according to behaviorists back then, everything's just conditioning. There's no, there's no such thing as innate drives and desires. It doesn't exist. It's all just conditioning. Well, who taught that fish to swim? Who, taught, who showed the horse how to run the prairie? So it, it's nothing to do with conditioning. So it's like these obvious um, flaws in thinking. And there's a clear presentation from someone else. Well, clearly there has to be something else. It doesn't fit here. And then people become stubborn. No, no, it fits. Here's why it fits. No, no, it fits just fine. <laughs> but it when it's so very obvious, if you take a step back, that makes no sense. There must be another explanation. So I need to broaden my horizon on how I approach this and how I look at this and how I look at this dog training problem. And, and change things up. So let me give you an example of something that happens every once in a while. Um, when, when we have to extinguish behaviors, behaviors that we just can't have. Dogs are aggressive and charge things or self-mutilate or this is a podcast on rattlesnake avoidance training and will be released soon. Um, when the dog has to learn to avoid not chasing cars or not going after rattlesnakes or whatever, right? we have to suppress something. There is a general process that we use to do that. It's a very effective process. Multiple steps, goes over well, multiple, um, yeah, multiple steps to, to accomplish the goal. It works very well. But there are dogs where some of those steps can't be just executed the way it will work on 90, 95%. Where you have to become creative on how you go about stopping the progression for example, or how you deliver the actual penalty at some stage in the process. You can't just do what will work on the majority of dogs because that particular dog in front of me is going to take very poorly to that. And it's going to actually backfire. Um, and it has a lot to do with the dog I'm dealing with. Right? So it, some things that will work beautifully on a German Shepherd may not work at all on a Chihuahua. Um, and I'm having something specific in mind, but it goes beyond this, this podcast topic. Um, if you want to explore more what I'm thinking of right now, there's a podcast episode called Dominance and Submission Explained. Listen to that and you know why I'm bringing up these two breeds. I think it's one of the early episodes. It's very early on. It's a very, very good episode. And 
but it doesn't fit that particular process. And it's a great process. Love that process. Works very well. But this needs modification because I have an aspect to this animal that makes this one step very difficult or impossible to do the way we normally do it. So we have to switch it up. And that's the same when you subscribe to a model that's broader, like I have the drive model, or I have the pack leader model, or I have the conditioning model. When you encounter a scenario, when you encounter a dog, when you deal with real life situations where it's just very obvious what it doesn't fit in there. Don't get stuck on why well, it's got to fit because that's my model. Try to branch your thinking out and look at it from a broader perspective. Maybe ask some people who may have a different viewpoint and see what they're thinking and maybe broaden your horizon and see if there's another thing. Maybe these models here, this model over here has aspects that fit that scenario better. Now that model over here may not fit other aspects of this dog, but maybe this one over here does. So you kind of have to piece that together sometimes and you can't stay in this narrow lane of this is it. Yeah? And obviously there's this um, the, the force-free training community, the positive reinforcement only trainers. That's again, that's a model. You don't need any aversives, no prong colors, no shock colors, no nothing to train something. That's their perspective, but that's a model. It's also an ideology. But it, it's a model they're subscribing to. And when you get into a scenario where you have to stop something to protect the life of the dog, like don't chase cars, don't chase rattlesnakes, reinforcement isn't the way to go to stop a behavior. By its very definition, reinforcement is about increasing the likelihood of behaviors, not suppressing them. So when you suppress something, you need to suppress something, reinforcement's the wrong way of thinking about it. That's not the way to go. So you have to just like look at the whole picture of what is this talk about? What's the goal I need to accomplish? I have this general model in my head, but does this actually fit neatly or do I see some gaps? And when you see gaps, don't try to force it in. Try to branch out. It's going to be a better outcome. And... Um, you may just discover new ways of thinking and learning in general that may help with other dogs and become a better trainer in the process. That's usually what happens. That's what happened to me. That's what I, happen, I hope happens to every dog trainer who's still uh, newer to the game. Um, keep learning. Don't stop. Keep learning until you reach a point where you go to a couple of workshops and courses and realize... I knew all of this actually, and maybe I disagree even with this point. And I'm disagreeing not because I have an ideology, but I disagree because I have additional information that I have learned someplace else. And I don't think he has that information or she has that information, but this is better explained with something other. So when you get to that stage, then you have really broadened your horizon and really broadened your knowledge and you can start surpassing the teacher because that should ultimately always be the goal of the student. And the duty of the student would be to surpass the teacher. Um, but you can only do that if you branch out, not if you contract and try to squeeze things into places they don't belong.
Okay, so that's the dog training model. So the relevance um, to, to a dog owner is obviously to interview dog trainers with a, an understanding of what is the person that I'm talking to um, see, um, thinking about relationship to dogs. How do they see dogs? How do they see training? How do they approach things? What's their thinking process like in terms of the problem that I'm describing? Are they even listening to me or are they just like, oh, it's like schema efforts that fits no matter what I do? And it gives you an idea of if the person you're talking to has a very narrow ideology or a narrow model or may have a model but doesn't mind branching out or also understands other models and will borrow freely to fix your problem because you're here to have your problem solved. And you don't really care about any of this when it comes to your personal dog. You just want it to be addressed. Right? So, but this helps you interview dog trainers. And that helps you understand what, who to hire, who not to hire, um, what areas to look at, what kind of training styles to look at. So there is this value, just like I have a high-level idea of how models fit into the whole dog training um, environment, dog training world, landscape. Landscape is the word I was looking for. So... That's it. Um, that's it on dog training models. I hope this was helpful and you got something out of it. And I see you again next time. Bye.